1: Hello and welcome to the Capex podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of Capex. You never have to wait too long before the SNP and its leader Nicola Sturgeon are beating the drum for another independence referendum. The dream of separation is the glue that holds an otherwise fractious coalition together. And this week, Sturgeon has once again upped the ante by promising a fresh vote next year, come what may. Our guest this week, Tom Harris, is well-placed to judge whether those dreams have the slightest chance of becoming a reality. Tom was a Labour Scottish MP from 2001 to 2015, before leaving the party in despair at its leftward turn under Jeremy Corbyn. Since leaving Parliament, he's established himself as a witty, authoritative commentator on all things Scottish and beyond, including as a regular contributor to CapEx. I caught up with him from his home in Scotland to discuss the fate of the nationalist cause, the travails of the unionists, and how much better Labour could be doing if their leader was someone other than Keir Starmer. Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the CapEx podcast. It's a pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast as you're a regular contributor to the website, often on um, Scottish affairs, but also general UK politics. So we'll delve into Some of those issues. The big one this week in terms of Scottish politics has been Nicola Sturgeon yet again saying she's going to go for another referendum uh, this time, apparently in October 2023, whether or not the UK government likes it or not. I mean, firstly, from a purely kind of legal and practical point of view, is there any way that this can fly? Will it just end up being a kind of glorified opinion poll?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I do listen to the podcast, and it's nice to actually be a guest. Yeah, I mean, another another day with a Y in it, so another uh, announcement on independence. Um, it's it's kind of complicated in one sense, and it's not at all complicated in another sense. In a strictly legal sense, uh, it, is, it is not up to the Scottish Parliament to decide whether or not to have an independence referendum. Uh, you can... You know, it's quite legitimate for people to say, "Well, it should be," uh, but the fact is that the constitution is a reserved issue. That was explicitly said so in the in the Scotland Act that the SNP supported. We should remember uh, in in uh, nineteen ninety eight, um, and uh, you, you know, any devolved system has to have a. A framework in black and white that says what's reserved and what's not, and that's what the Scotland Act is for. Uh, So, you know, on the face of it, any kind of referendum that the Scottish government choose to hold uh, doesn't have any legal legitimacy. However, I mean, I've said this before, I've probably said it in articles for CapEx, you know, the SNP, the, the nationalist movement is like a shark. It's got to be moving forward all of the time otherwise it dies. And the independence movement has to be campaigning permanently for independence. Otherwise, what's the point of it? You know, uh, you don't join the SNP to campaign for better schools or, or better hospitals. There's only one reason you join the SNP and that's to fight for independence. And if you're not fighting for independence, there's no point in you being in it. So, uh, and to that extent, Sturgeon is a prisoner of our own party. I think, I don't know her well, I've only met her on a few occasions. I suspect that deep down, she probably wants to be a kind of figure who is a master of all policy and wants to produce policies that will benefit Scots and, and, and even perhaps even the whole of Scotland, not just SNP supporters, who knows? But she is the leader of the SNP. So therefore she doesn't really have a choice. At all about whether or not she campaigns for independence, even if she wanted to put it to bed for a generation, which she claims she wants would, uh, she wouldn't allow it because the definition of an SNP leader who's not campaigning for independence is a former leader of the SNP. You cannot be the leader of the SNP and and not prioritise independence. So, so that's where she is. And yes, you're right. I mean. If she were to find some way forward that would allow her to hold some kind of unofficial referendum, a wildcat referendum of the type they had in Catalonia, um, then it would have no, you know, first of all, unionists like myself would, would not take part in it. It would have no legitimacy uh, democratically, it would have no validity legally, and it would turn into just a huge waste of time and everyone's money.
1: I wonder um, how contingent do you think the SNP's popularity and success is on the personal qualities of both of Nicola Sturgeon and actually Alex Salmond? Because they've been quite lucky for a relatively small party to have two, whether you like them or not, two very capable politicians leading them. I mean, do you think lightning can strike thrice if, the next, uh, if, if Nicola Sturgeon goes?
2: Uh, the, the simple answer to that is yes, of course it can and it will. Because I, I vividly remember conversations that I and fellow Labour MPs had when Alex Salmond was First Minister and, and you know, basically dominating Scottish politics in a way that even Donald Eur had been unable to. Um, and we used to cackle to ourselves in a smug sort of way, ha ha, when, when, when Salmond goes, it'll probably be Sturgeon who takes over and then they're finished. Because from our perspective, and actually it was an accurate perspective, Sturgeon was a journeyman politician with no ministerial achievements to her name, no particular uh, presence or charisma, uh, and very much in contrast with with Salmond. But then what happened, the SNP uh, acclaimed her as, as their new leader in tw- at the end of 2014, and with that position, with the position of SNP leader and, of course, as First Minister, comes a whole, you know, range of, of, of prestige, unearned prestige, but prestige nonetheless. Um, and I suspect something similar, perhaps on a slightly lesser scale, but something similar will happen with her a successor. And, uh, and I think unionists place far too much confidence and faith in this idea that once X departs the stage, we will then benefit because uh, X's successor won't be as popular. That's a silly, short-sighted and unfounded uh, basis for optimism.
1: So that, I mean that kind of leaves us with the actual um, both socio-cultural and political, arguments, one way or the other. I mean, how has that evolved in the last, uh, well, in the time since the referendum in 2014? How has the actual case they're making for independence changed? Or has it changed at all? Is it basically the same as it ever
2: was? Uh, some elements of it will remain the same forever. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, they will always, in, in nationalist mind, strengthen the case for independence. So Uh, Brexit strengthened the case for independence. If we had voted Remain in 2016, that would also, I guarantee, have strengthened the case for independence Uh, on the basis, I assume that, well, now we can leave the UK, still be part of the EU, and there won't be any trade barriers at Carlisle. Um, it doesn't. I mean, I remember in uh, back in the early 1990s when I worked for the Labour Party, Alex Salmond would make the case for independence based on the fact that interest rates set by the Bank of England were were done so to benefit the economy of the southeast of England and, and not. With the advantages uh, for the rest of the country in mind, um, a few years later he was saying that actually, you know, we need to keep the pound and we need to keep the Bank of England setting interest rates. Uh, and in both cases, his argument was that whatever his solution was, it benefited in the case for independence. It's a kind of a mindset. I mean, that's why in, the nas- in the nationalism is as much a religious conviction as, as a political one. It's not. It's not based on on the reality of facts. it's based on a kind of you know an emotional attachment to a, a, a an idea. Um, and when that happens, you you know you change reality as you perceive it so that all the conclusions you know, happen to agree with your own views, and it doesn't really matter what the what the international economy is like, it doesn't matter what the geopolitical situation is like. Um, You know, whatever happens, that that just proves that independence is the right thing. So in that respect, we're exactly the same place as we were in 2014. In another vital respect, we're exactly the same position, because the latest opinion poll suggested that uh, Scots support the Union by a margin, guess what, of 55 to 45. Now, Sturgeon stood up this week and she said that um, she wanted an independence referendum now because everything had changed since 2014. Well, what has changed? Yes, Brexit has happened, but the polls simply show that the majority of Scots, 55% of them, would rather remain in a UK outside the EU than in an independent Scotland as part of the EU. That's a difficult truth to accept. So in one sense, I can understand why she's refusing to accept that fact, but it is a fact. Um, you know, the the, the polling is, is is pretty unambiguous in that. Now the polls will change again. You know, they will still hover between you know forty five and fifty five either direction. But that that doesn't create any kind of you know the, the SNP were expecting a massive switch in support after the the twenty sixteen EU referendum. Uh, they genuinely expect that's why they didn't lift a finger during the EU referendum because they were quite happy for Scotland to vote in a completely different way. They didn't want the, the, the remain vote to be particularly, um, you know, they didn't want to swing the, the votes at a UK level. They, they were quite happy for Scotland to be seen to be an outlier and and different from the rest of the country. And they expected the result of that to be a massive increase in support for independence. It didn't happen. Um, And I think they're still trying to come to terms with that.
1: One of the discomforting things, and you touched on it there, is that from a union's point of view, almost all the arguments, particularly the economic ones that the SNP have made down the years, have been pretty thoroughly debunked you know they started off saying oh we'll have all this oil revenue well that's pretty much gone you know they they don't know anything about or they can't tell us anything about what the currency situation would be they can't really tell us anything about whether an independent scotland would be in the eu and yet their support remains pretty solid i mean does that mean from the unionist point of view what do you think the best sort of approach is if theirs is an emotional argument then can the unions make a similarly emotional argument or do we actually play a different kind of game and, and keep trying to point out the inadequacies of their arguments?
2: Yeah, I mean, if I knew the answer to this one, I probably would have held on to my seat in 2015. It's <laughs> actually, it, it is it's the eternal conundrum of, of Scottish politics. Incidentally, just, you know, you, you, you make my point that I made earlier about, you know, it doesn't matter what the facts are, they support independence. You know, when Scotland was oil rich, uh, this... Sh- Proved that Scotland should go it alone. Uh, now that we're not allowed to use oil. Uh, this just proves that Scotland should go it alone because we've got lots of, I don't know, sunlight for solar power. We really don't. Uh, you know, we've lots of wind and we've got lots of tides and, and therefore we you are know, rich in renewables, and therefore that proves that Scotland should go alone. Um it, I think the unionists make mistakes when it comes to, to confronting the SNP. Now now on the one hand we've got an ever-growing list of, of SNP failures in government. Uh, now at, at, at the moment that's that isn't you know that's not resulting in lower support for them at the opinion polls. They still, you know, they they dominate Scottish politics in a way that no party ever has before. Um, that will that looks like it's going to continue i have to believe that at some point political gravity will kick in and uh, people will start waking up to the scandal of well for example you know millions of pounds of taxpayers money being used to produce snp leaflets on independence um, i mean that that is a scandal uh you know the ferries the scottish census debacle which which means basically the information we've got from the census uh, isn't worth anything we can't use it to to plan future services, because there isn't a high enough return rate. And that happened because the SNP decided to um, disconnect it from the UK census, because we're Scottish, we're not British, et cetera. Uh, And there's a whole other range of, I mean, one one particular failure I feel particularly strongly about is Sturgeon's claim that she was concerned about the the attainment gap between poorer schools and, and wealthier schools in Scotland. And that is a serious, issue that has to be addressed. Um, and she said that she wanted to be judged on that. Now she no longer wants to be judged on it. In fact, the Scottish Government has scrapped its, its targets for reducing the attainment gap. These sort of things at the moment aren't having any impact on SNP support. Um, and there's no magic bullet uh, there's no trigger you can pull to say that, you know, to, to ensure that people will be taking account of this in the future. But at some point, I think reality will kick in and people will wake up and say, well, you know, we've been voting for the SNP for X number of years now and our schools are still rubbish and, our, you know, their budgets are being cut and the police are, police budget's being cut. At some point, perhaps Scots will wake up and, and, and blame the culprits instead of blaming uh westminster which they seem all inclined uh to do
1: and what about we've spoken pretty much exclusively about the smp so far i mean how do you see the state of the other parties in scottish politics um both of whom seem to struggle quite a lot for airtime it strikes me
2: yeah uh, it's the same kind of problem that we faced in 2015, the general election, where you've got you know 55% of unionist voters and 45% of nationalists, but the 55% is split, their support is split between three unionist parties and the SNP have all of the 50 of uh, the 45%, which was enough to, to sweep the board in Scotland. And, and to a certain extent, that's the situation you've got now. You've got Anna Sarwar, uh, Douglas Ross and... Uh, that's ridiculous. I've forgotten who the Lib Dem leader is now.
1: Which tells you everything you need to know about the state of <laughs> Lib Dems in Scotland, I think.
2: Um, and they're they're competing, you know, to see who can be the main challenger to, to, to the SNP. And that obviously plays into the, the SNP's hands. That's slightly changed. There was an opinion poll recently that showed that Anas Sarwar is now more popular than, than Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. Which is a huge achievement wow. actually yeah. in a relatively short space of time. It's only a two percent lead it's within the margin of error. But it shows Anas is back in the game. I think he has played a blinder, actually. Now the, the, the situation in Scotland, I mean, Douglas Ross, who is a good guy, I like him a lot. Um, but the fact is there is a ceiling on on Scottish Conservative support in Scotland. They're, they're, you know, they're they're not going to get to the stage where they're they're Polling in the mid to high 30s, for example, there's just, you know, the demographics won't allow that to happen. Um, the, the real enemy that the SNP have never stopped fretting about is the Scottish Labour Party even though for years they've been in third place in the polls, they're now in second place. But they did come second at the last Holyrood election. Uh, they came third at the last Holyrood elections, second at the local government elections. Um, and it's, the, it's, it's Sarwar and the later part of the SNP uh, despise and fear the most, um, not because they're in imminent danger of being turfed out of office, but because there is a whole swathe of seats in the West Central Scotland that used to be Labour seats and now are SNP seats, including my own. Um, and the SNP know that the Conservatives are never going to be in a position to win them. But they do know that, you know, we know from the 2017 election where Labour, you know, surprisingly won a half a dozen of those seats back. Uh, now they lost them again a couple of years later, but that did show that the, the main threat to the SNP in, in Scotland comes from the Scottish Labour Party. Sawar knows this. Uh, He's played a good game so far. He's played a very strategic game. He's in this for the long haul. I think that is useful as well because the party supports him in the long term. They know that there's not going to be immediate gains over the short term Um, uh, and that's okay with Sawar. He's an impatient young man, of course, but I think he understands he's going to have to wait a bit longer and who knows he might pull off.
1: Just returning to the kind of very immediate political question, which is one for this, for the government, for Boris Johnson, essentially. Do you think their best, is their is best response to just sort of stonewall and kind of ignore the SNP? Because I think one of the problems with unionism down the years is that they've tended to think that they'll just chuck a bit more devolution Scotland's way and expect things to somehow, that to somehow assuage the SNP. But it does the opposite. It just leaves them yeah. hungry for more.
2: Yeah. I mean, and later this year, we're going to see the the, the publication of the, the Gordon Brown's latest review of, of Labour's constitutional um, policies. And I'm looking forward to that because it'll give me another excuse to write a diatribe for CapEx about Gordon Brown's uh, misjudgments on, on this score. I mean, we all know what it's going to say. It's going to call for a full federal system and even more power to the Scottish Parliament. And... You know, I know that it's not actually an Einstein quote, but, you know, the, 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 the story about, you know, the first sign of madness is repeating the same action over and over again, expecting a different outcome each time. Uh, I think Theresa May and Boris Johnson have been absolutely right by calling a halt to this continual concession that Brown and David Cameron indulged in when it came to the SNP. This idea that you can defeat the SNP by giving them more power. And every time that has happened, the SNP becomes stronger. And of course, why wouldn't they? Because people who vote for the SNP then see the unionist parties and the UK government capitulating to them. Um, and getting more power for the Scottish Parliament. So, of course, that's a benefit to the SNP. It's not a benefit to the Unionist parties. And yet Gordon will come out with a new template that will say what we did back in the noughties and in the early part of the of the last decade under David Cameron, we should do that, but but do it more, and that will somehow change things for the better. It makes no sense whatever, absolutely uh, uh, none. So I think Johnson has got it right. I think um, he has been very engaged in the Scottish question. Um, I I, I like it when he comes up here. I know that that some Scottish politicians absolutely hate it when our prime minister comes to any this particular part of his country. But I think that's the right thing to do. I'd like to see more UK ministers uh, spend more time in Scotland to remind voters that scotland has two national governments
1: yeah i mean it's uh, it's interesting you said i was going to ask I mean, how helpful is is boris johnson because people always say that he's the kind of archetype of what scots dislike about um about england i wonder slightly similar to my question earlier about the kind of emotional arguments do you think the british government needs to do more in terms of what the SNP, i think is very good at which is the kind of symbolism of nationhood so you go to Scotland, there are saltires everywhere, everything is, you know, Scott rail, police Scotland, like, everything is very, you know, front and centre Scottish in a way that it isn't British, or and in England it isn't English, there aren't St George's crosses everywhere and English this and that.
2: Well, of course, the problem, especially in the west of Scotland, is that the Union flag is associated with a form of unionism or loyalism that really doesn't have a place in mainstream politics you know, it's associated with anti-Catholic bigotry uh, and Rangers Football Club. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and incidentally, I do not associate bigotry with Rangers Football Club, two separate issues. Uh, but, you know, there is a sectarianism problem in the west of Scotland, um, so flying the Union flag is often a, a, a dubious exercise, which is a real shame. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it frustrates me that you know, the you know Guardian columnists and uh, pro-European follow-back people on Twitter denigrate every British government minister whenever they display a union flag behind them in their office. And yet if they come to Scotland, they will find that every single piece of literature that comes through the door that's sent from any Scottish government agency has a Scottish flag on it. The Scottish flag, as you see, is everywhere. And that's OK. That's good. You see, that's, that's uh, civic nationalism. Um, and that's progressive and that's centrist. Uh, but if you show the Union flag anywhere, then that's, that's colonialist, apparently. That's imperialism. Um, and it's all bullshit, of course it is. But, you know, that's, that's where we are. I think the SNP have won the Battle of the Flags. You know, it used to be, we used to have an argument in the Labour Party, oh, we've got to take back the flag in the same way that the Conservatives took the Union flag back from the British National Party and the National Front, you know, because the Union flag used to be associated with the far right. Um, and, and a lot's been done now to, to, to remedy that. And, and Labour used to say, oh, we need to do that with the SNP, take the Scottish flag back from the SNP. Nah, too late. Every time you see someone hanging a saltire out the front of the window, you know it's because they're SNP supporters, and I do see that changing.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You touched on um, the flag issue. I mean, people very the Guardian columnist types you refer to often refer to people's flag shaggers if they do anything flag related. or Keir Starmer does very basic politics of wearing a suit and standing in front of the country's flag and he's seen as some kind of proto-fascist. Yeah absolutely. Uh, I wonder how you feel I mean you left the Labour Party a few years ago having been a Labour MP and a minister in the Labour government obviously it had gone in a direction under Jeremy Corbyn that was completely you know the antithesis of your own politics but where do you see Labour now in terms of it's well where Keir Starmer's tried to put the party.
2: Um I I, I think you know cards on the table. I think Starmer is a, a good chap. I think he's you know I, I think he's made mistakes in the past, he's made misjudgments you know and I don't think he'll ever escape the long shadow of Jeremy Corbyn. Because you know the fact is he did campaign for Corbyn to become prime minister and a lot of people won't forgive him for that. And I and I, you know I I am Angry about that, and I'm angry about every Labour MP that tried to make uh, Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. Um, But at the same time, there's you know political reality is a thing. Um, You know, it it was probably too much to expect the whole of the Labour Party to you know cease functioning just because Starmer was temporarily the loser at the time. I mean, I felt strongly about it, and I made my own personal decision. Um, I think. Starmer, essentially, I think his instincts are right. I think, uh, you know, he has more, obviously, more Tony Blair than, than, than Jeremy Corbyn. I think, instinctively, his background is, you know, a liberal lefty London lawyer, uh, the 4Ls, and, uh, you know, that doesn't help. Uh, the party attract the kind of voters that it needs to attract, especially in the, the Midlands and the north of England, let alone Scotland. Um, but I think, in general, I think he's a decent bloke. I, 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 he has his weaknesses. I, I think he's a terrible public speaker. I thought his speech at last year's conference was dreadful. He doesn't know how to deliver a speech, and that can be remedied, actually. you know That's, that's not terminal. Um, but he has made some misjudgments. Um, and I think his problem is, and I've said this a number of times, uh, with regard to other leaders, that the public tend, and this happens in America as well. The public tend to make their own mind up about a politician in the very early days of his or her leadership, or or their public prominence. And once they made their minds up, it has happened, but it's very, very rarely happens that they change that that view. Now. Having the, the caveat on that is that, of course, politicians can start off popular and become unpopular. It's very rare for politicians to start off unpopular and then become popular. It's very, very difficult to turn that around. It's like an oil tanker. Um, you know, I think, for example, I mean, I, I tend when I write stuff, I tend to go into you know fairly recent Labour Party history. When Neil Kennett became leader in nineteen eighty three, um, there there was a lot of Jubiety about his his left wing credentials, and you know, did he have what it takes to be prime minister? And there was a view I remember reading a thing in the Guardian back in eighty four, which said that he, you know this, I can't remember who wrote it said you know, you know Neil Kinnock will never be prime minister, and I I took great offence at this, and of course they were right, and the public had made their minds up very early about Kinnock. They made their minds up very early about uh, Tony Blair as well. Um. And I, th- I suspect they've made their mind up about Keir Starmer. Um, and it, it, his poll ratings on a personal level are not disastrous, but we did see one poll this week that put Boris Johnson as, as a more popular option for prime minister. Now, if you have gone through what Johnson has just gone through over the last year, um, and he is still personally more popular, or even within spitting distance of the leader of the opposition, That's a problem for the Labour Party. I I really do think that is a problem. Uh, And and I I would never, I'm not, I have never in my entire life, uh, certainly not my political life, called for anyone to resign. It's just a lazy thing to do. And I I didn't do it as an MP. I'm not doing it now. But the Labour Party has suffered in the course of its history by having uh, leaders who should have understood that they were not the solution and that they should have stepped aside for the good of the party, and they didn't. And I'm talking about Neil Kinnock uh, after the 87 election, Michael Foote at any time uh, after 1981, Gordon Brown at any time before the 2010 general election, the, the history of the Labour Party its record in government would have been transformed if we'd had people leading the party who had the self-awareness to understand when to step aside, and we've never had that. And I, I wrote a piece the other day pointing out that the only two post-war Labour leaders to have been replaced in the middle of a parliament were Hugh Gaitskell and John Smith, and that was only because they both died. And there should be a there should be another you know, disqualification for, for continuing as leader other than, than death. Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that, that Keir has to resign, but I think it would be really interesting and, uh, you know, incredibly enervating for the Labour Party now in 2022 to have a leadership election that involved Andy Burnham, West Streeting and Rachel Reeves. I mean, I just think that would showcase the Labour Party's biggest talents in a way that the Conservative Party could not match and would be really pretty scared of, but it wouldn't happen because the Labour Party elects leaders for life, basically, and until they, they choose to go.
1: Yeah, well, you answered what was going to be my next question, which was... Sorry about was there ...an issue. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. It's uh, mind reading. Like, which was going to be, you know, who is realistically waiting in the wings, but... I suspect, as you say, we're probably going to have to wait until at least 2024 to find out. Do you think even if Labour did well in the next general election, uh, sorry, if Labour did well in the next general election, do you think they keep Starmer even if he didn't actually win or get into government, or would that be it?
2: No, that would be it. I think we're, we're past the time now where Neil Kinnock you know, was able to stay on after the 87 general election. I think that was the last time that could happen. Having said that, of course, Corbyn stayed on after losing in 2017, but that was uh, unusual circumstances. Uh, no, if, if if Starmer fails to get into government uh, uh, next time round, then he will leave the scene. Um, and I think by then, you know, it, it, a lot will depend on whether Andy Burnham has made a return to Parliament. I mean, I hear rumours that... He might be interested in standing in his own his old seat, Lee, uh, which is now, of course, Conservative held. But if Andy were to stand and win that back, it would put him in a position. Now, whether I don't know whether Andy is even interested in standing for a third time, you know, third time lucky, uh, especially if he's going to face someone like uh, Wes Streeting, who I think would be actually quite difficult to beat, because I think Wes just seems to me. He just shouts Tony Blair at me. I, I think he is really very effective. Um, I think he's human. He sounds human, which is really important in the politician's and surprisingly rare. Um, he's got a great backstory. Uh, you know, raised by a single parent uh, on a council estate. I think he knows how to speak to voters, uh, particularly the kind of voters Labour Labour needs. Um, there will be a lot of pressure for a woman leader, and which is where Rachel Reeves uh, may come in. Um, when it comes down to it, and I said this in 2015, when the leadership election was going on at that point, it's not enough, it's not good enough for Labour Party members to vote for the person that they want to see, for, for the person that they agree with most. That's utterly irrelevant. What Labour Party members need to do is adopt the mindset of their non-political, non-Labour voting neighbour and consider who they would like to see as the next Prime Minister. And if you don't happen to agree with that particular candidate on Trident or the EU or whatever, who cares? Doesn't matter. Vote for the person that will win you votes. Because if the Labour Party doesn't get into power the next time, people are going to start asking what it's for. Mm. And
1: Just finally, I mean, we're coming up to the sixth anniversary. It feels almost bizarre to say that because it still doesn't feel settled. We're six years on from the the referendum and you were kind of one of the rare beasts in that you were going to Blairite Brexiteer. Um, What's your view of how things have panned out? since and whether or not there is any realistic prospect this is something that has been talked up in the press a bit recently of trying to kind of unpick Brexit if say Labour were to come to government with someone like Keir Starmer as Prime Minister do you think that's realistic or is that just people trying to create a wedge issue because it's a strong area for Boris Johnson
2: I 't don't, I don't think it's realistic at all. I think labor understands that they lost in 2019 largely because of Brexit, but also Corbyn. but Brexit played a huge role that, and you can you can hear the fear in the voice of front benchers when they're interviewed um, about whether or not we should rejoin the single market. Um, and of course, they all want to, of course they do, because they're all pro-Remainers. Um, but they're, they're terrified, and obviously the, the instruction has gone out from the Leader of the Opposition's Office not to give the media any hints that the Labour Party might consider renegotiating or entry into the, the single market. And the irony of that is actually there is a case for it. I'm not advocating that case, but there is actually a case for looking again at the single market or the customs union, and you would think that the the... The opposition would be in a position to actually lead that debate, but they're so petrified of what happened in 2019 that they actually can't. Now, I support, I was one of the few people uh, who supported Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal, uh, the so-called stopgap. Um, And I still maintain, I mean, you know, that would have kept us inside the single market. Um, And and it would have secured, uh, you know, they've dealt with any problems on Northern Ireland, and I understood why some Brexters were not in favour of it. But we had the Labour Party at the time, you know, who, were, who were basically wanted to have another referendum in order to reverse the result of the first one. Uh, and, and we know that they would have preferred a soft Brexit. But when given the opportunity to vote for a soft Brexit and keep us in the single market, they voted against it and it was such political incompetence. And, and it's still with them. They're, they're still frightened to talk about it because I think a lot of them actually recognise now that they missed an opportunity. Um, um, uh, and it would have destroyed the Conservative Party at the time. It would have absolutely split them top to bottom and they wouldn't be in power at the moment. And I'm not sure they'd ever got back to power because Europe is such a defining uh, issue for them. Um, so Labour to are, are take a long time, I think to recover from that but no there's no prospect of the Labour Party revisiting that either in opposition or in government because they, they're, they're, they got their fingers burnt and they're not prepared to do that again.
1: So Brexit very much here to say. Tom uh, we've run out of time I'm afraid but thank you so much for joining us it was an extremely insightful and entertaining conversation and I look forward to you uh, being back on our pages very soon so thanks a lot.
2: Thank you very much John.